If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Just how bad was life in a Victorian prison? How hard was hard labour? And how disgusting was the food? Well, on today's Everything You Wanted to Know podcast, we'll be going behind bars to explore the history of British prisons with Dr. Rosalind Crone. Putting your questions to Rosalind was our content director, David Musgrove. Today, I am joined by Dr. Rosalind Crone, who is Senior Lecturer in History at the Open University and Director of the Centre for the History of Crime, Policing and Justice, and also Project Leader on the website prisonhistory.org, which is well worth a visit and has lots of information there. Now, Rosalind is joining us because we are doing the next in our Everything You Want to Know series, uh, and today we are looking at the history of the prison in Britain. And just to remind mind listeners who aren't familiar with this. Uh, the way this series works is we've asked you, our listeners, to um, come up with questions that you would like to know on the topic. And we've also looked at uh, the most popular internet search queries on the subject too. We've collated them all together and uh, I've uh, passed them over to Rosalind to have a look at, and then we're going to run through them and hopefully give you a good introduction to the topic. So Rosalind, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, how are you this morning? Yeah, good, thanks. Thanks for having me on, Dave. Pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Okay, so we had loads and loads of questions, all sorts of topics. So we're probably uh, going to have a, a quite a long discussion here. And we've uh, we've collated them into, into hopefully a sensible running order. So first question uh, going into, into dating. Uh, when was the first prison that we know of established and why? That comes from Coriander Davis on Facebook. And there's a sort of related question, which was when was the first state prison in Britain open? So I wonder if you might be able to handle both those together. Sure, no problem. Well, it, it sort of depends on how you define a prison, uh, a, a place of incarceration, so to hold those who are accused of wrongdoing, uh, criminals who have broken the law or who are a threat to society, such as soldiers or combatants from an opposing side, uh, or prison as a place of punishment to punish those who are accused uh, or convicted of breaking the law. 
the practice of incarceration is probably as old as human society itself. We know there were prisons in the great civilizations of the ancient world, uh, Egypt, Rome, for example, though these were often largely, if not exclusively, used as holding pens for those who were awaiting trial or awaiting punishment. Incarceration was often not a punishment in itself. Okay, When it was used as a punishment, it was often just one of lots of options. So people might be sentenced to death, uh, exile to another country, or other bodily punishments. Uh, prisons or places of incarceration could be found in public buildings, for example, in the Forum Complex in Rome, uh, and also even in private houses sometimes, or communes. The same is true for much of the history of Britain, up until about the 17th or 18th century. Okay, so there were, we know there were jails in the 9th century uh, in Britain for criminals. Uh, in medieval England, there were also prisons or cells within cathedral complexes and monasteries, and that's because of the importance of uh, canon law or religious law. Uh, and these were used for uh, the incarceration of clerics and, and sometimes lay people who were, who were convicted of, of uh, being guilty of sins, uh, crimes against the church. A wave of prison building in civil society followed the Norman conquest of 1066. Okay, so most people are probably familiar uh, with the Tower of London that was built by William I, and this was the first royal prison in England, so it was used to hold enemies of the king, basically. There was also the Fleet Prison in London that was built in 1197, and this was used for the custody of those who were confined by the London justices, uh, also prisoners of war, hostages, and there was another royal prison at Winchester around that time as well. In 1166, the king, Henry II, issued what we know as the Assizes of Clarendon, and this required sheriffs, county sheriffs, to build jails in each county to hold those who were accused of felonies until they could be tried by the new travelling royal justices who had just been established, what we later know as the Assize Courts. Towns that were granted a charter by the king around this time were also expected to build and maintain a jail. And this was part of their responsibility to kind of keep the peace uh, within their jurisdiction. So royal prisons then were, were kind of built all around the country. Nobles could also have their own prisons in their grand houses or their castles. And also some prisons were what we might call franchise prisons. And that's basically what it says on the tin. So literally someone can buy the right from the king uh, to run a prison and then make money from it. So from around about the 12th or 13th century, we see this amazing kind of growth in the number of prisons in England and later Wales, and also in the number of offences uh, which could be punished with imprisonment. Uh, these are still small, uh, as, as well as um, there being new restrictions to bail, you know, prisoners being able to, prisoners who are being held uh, for trial being able to leave, so more and more were kept inside the prison. In the mid-16th century, another type of prison suddenly appeared on the scene, and this was the Bridewell or House of Correction. And the first was the Bridewell Hospital in London, which was established in 1555 in response to various social problems within the metropolis. Uh, I'm talking here about vagrancy and the petty crime that was associated with it. So this idea of a Bridewell or House of Correction spread throughout England, and by the early 17th century, we know there were approximately 170 of these kind of houses of correction. So these were intended as kind of 
custodial institutions for the, the idle and disorderly poor. Okay, so to punish and reform those guilty of petty offences, vagrancy, uh, begging, prostitution. In the late 18th century, sentences of imprisonment in the House of Correction could be given to convicted felons, so those convicted of more serious crimes, as an alternative to transportation. As for the first state prison, uh, if we think of a state prison as being uh, financed and administered directly by a Department of State, uh, this was established in 1816 at Millbank in London. So the Millbank prison was a penitentiary for men and women who had been convicted of crimes which ordinarily would have been sent, would have been uh, transported for. Uh, but instead they were given these long prison sentences which uh, the authorities hoped would enable their rehabilitation and they could be released back into British society. Right, thanks. That's a really... Uh clear and full answer. And I think one of the things that's probably going to come through this conversation is this question of uh, how far incarceration was a punishment in itself or a means to an end of, uh, in, in some other format. Um, let's move on to the next question, which is from uh, Phil Gabe um, on Facebook, who wanted to know, what was the transition from dungeons to prisons for incarceration triggered by? So quite an interesting uh, line of thought there. Yeah, yeah, this is a really interesting question, actually, because it assumes that there there was or is a kind of distinction between dungeons and prisons. Uh, dungeons could be regarded as a type of prison, couldn't they? Um, historically, they've been used for the incarceration of criminals or enemies. Uh, many prisons before the modern period in Britain were arguably dungeon-like, and some continued to be dungeon-like, or even they were even recognisable dungeons in the early 19th century. So, yeah, now I, when we think about dungeons, we I think we often think about uh, cells at the bottom of castles. Do you think that's fair, or or kind of cells underground with very little light and and few if any furnishings, and, and prisoners chained to the walls? Yeah, and, and that, 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 that particularly kind of, thing. sort of yeah that uh, that, 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 that filmish yeah. view. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I don't think that's uh, that's not so far from the truth for many medieval and early modern prisons. I think it's fair to say that conditions in prisons before the modern period really differed quite substantially, both between different institutions, but also within individual institutions. So it's worth pointing out that just about everything had to be paid for by prisoners in jails, uh, including their, their bedding, uh, their food, uh, fuel for heating, that kind of thing. Prisoners basically had to bear the cost of their confinement and they might not even be released and, until they, they had paid fees that, that were demanded by the jailer. So in, in some institutions, wealthy prisoners through this, this kind of system could make themselves quite comfortable and they could pay for, for luxuries, so their own private quarters and even bring in their servants. Uh, but poorer prisons were kind of herded into these, these common wards or rooms and the conditions could be quite foul. Uh, even even deadly, actually, for, for some who couldn't afford food and who became ill, and they might contract jail fever, which often a form of typhus, uh, and the luckier ones among them were supported by charity. So this is what I mean by like uh, dungeon-like conditions, right? As for the idea of this transition from dungeon to prison, or we might say from uh, dungeon to uh, a kind of well-ordered, healthy institution, I think we can date this to Kind of the second half of the 18th century and the philanthropic activities of a range of uh, prison reformers at that time. Most famous is perhaps John Howard. 
who on his appointment as the the high sheriff of Bedfordshire in in the 1860s became aware of the conditions in his his local county jail there and he was absolutely appalled. He kind of went on this whole campaign visiting prisons all around Britain to to catalogue the terrible conditions and to argue for some kind of transformation. He was very keen on transforming these jails into healthier environment and reforming their, their structures and management as well also appointing ministers of the church, chaplains, who would concern themselves with prisoners' souls, so to make things uh, a lot better and more religious. So many prisons were rebuilt uh, in Britain in the closing decades of the 18th century because of his work. Uh, But this kind of piecemeal reform and overcrowding uh, in the early 19th century undid a lot of the progress that had been made in the late 18th century. And this is where we get these, these accounts, again, of dungeon-like conditions, really dreadful conditions in prisons in the reform literature of the 1810s. Uh, people might know of Elizabeth Fry and her exposure of the terrible conditions at Newgate uh, in the second decade of the 19th century, for example. Again, dungeon-like. Uh, but the dungeons of the, the medieval and early modern period, um, the, these were certainly not driven from the field until about the, the 1860s. And connected to this kind of idea of of transition from from prisoners, connected to this is this idea of this this transition from prisoners holding pen uh, for those who are awaiting punishment or awaiting conviction to prison as a place where sentences of imprisonment were served, so prison as punishment. And this began in about the mid-16th century with the establishment of the Houses of Correctional Bridewells that, that I mentioned before, but then really took off in the late 18th century and especially in the early 19th century when sentences of imprisonment began to replace bodily punishments and over time transportation as well. Right, let's move on. Uh, So Paul Bloomfield on Twitter uh, wants to know, how and when was the transition from private jails, and he cites the example of the the Marshall Sea, to publicly run prisons undertaken? Okay, so... Before the modern period, uh, responsibility for jails was was kind of devolved from the king uh, to the sheriff in the case of county jails or his equivalent for town jails. This was sometimes a sheriff for a big town or it might be another office holder within the town corporation uh, or it was devolved to the franchise holder in the case of franchise jails. And these officials would then employ a jailer to then run the institution. So apart from the provision of buildings, and perhaps some structural maintenance, jails were were basically expected to be self-supporting. So officials, jailers, and other staff that they might employ, uh, they had to obtain their incomes from the jail, not from the authority. So hence, there was in each institution a kind of system of fees in order to gain that income that that were levied on prisoners. So there was a a fee for entrance into the prison and a fee for discharge that, that you had to pay if you wanted to leave, even if you had been acquitted or found um, that there was no crime to answer. And also you could pay fees to the jailer to ease the conditions of your imprisonment. So uh, for food, for bedding, a blanket or a bed, uh, for fuel, for heating, and you could even pay to have your irons removed if they were uncomfortable and you could afford it. Yeah, which I guess you'd want to do, wouldn't you? (laughs) If you could, I, I think that would be a great idea. So Running the prison could be quite profitable, and the post of jailer in, in some places actually sold to the highest bidder. People wanted these these jobs. Uh, in some other places, it was actually inherited and passed from from father to son. 
this this kind of system started to break down, you could argue, in, in the late 16th century uh, with the rise of the, the Bridewell or House of Correction because keepers of these Houses of Correction were paid a salary from local rates or local taxes, uh, as, as people might know them. So magistrates were also responsible for, for oversight um, of, of these prisons as well, these Houses of Correction. But the labour of the prisoners was still used to finance that, that institution. And some prisoners in Houses of Correction were still charged fees as well. Now, in the last third of, in the, last third of the 18th century, uh, and, and this is a, re- a result of the efforts of, of John Howard, who we've just spoken about, uh, there, there was legislation passed that aimed to reduce fees that, that were charged to prisoners. So, for example, those prisoners who were acquitted, who were found not guilty, uh, were told they didn't have to pay a discharge fee to jailers anymore. And there was also legislation that, that allowed local authorities to pay their jailers uh, from local taxes. Uh, in 1815, as late as 1815, we might say, uh, finally we see a Jail Fees Abolition Act that was passed by, by Parliament. And this abolished all fees and gratuities and said that that could be charged um, to, to, from prisoners. And it, and it also specified that the, sailors for jail, that the salaries for jailers and any other staff had to be paid from local taxes. So that, re- that really abolished that, that system of jailers making a profit and making income uh, from, from the prisoners. The Jails Act of 1823 also specified that there, there should be a minimum level of subsistence, a minimum amount of food given to prisoners, and that this should also be paid out of local taxes. And it also stated really importantly that wealthy prisoners who had been convicted uh, couldn't then buy extra food. They had to be given that minimum level as well. So they, they couldn't get uh, kind of indulgences uh, however, that the, the labour of prisoners could still be used for some financial gain to bring revenues into the prison. And, and sometimes uh, labour was connected with the local economy as well. This didn't really change until the nationalisation of prisons in 1878. Uh, perhaps we should, we should mention debtors in all of this, uh, remembering that the question was about Marshalsea uh, Prison in London. Uh, and, and I think that the, the, there was, the problem here is the continuation of privileges uh, that were denied to other criminal prisoners. So debtors in the 19th century could still have people come and visit them when they liked. Uh, They had much better living quarters and their their own food. Uh, They could buy buy these. And they also had the ability to to socialise. So, you know, and and jailers continued to charge fees for these these privileges and other services. And this continued uh, well into the, the 19th century until legislators um, and the new prison inspectors really, you know, decided they wanted to tighten things up. So in 1869, uh, when imprisonment for debt was was kind of dramatically curtailed, this this basically brought an end uh, to to the running of these prisons for private profit. So that leads in quite nicely to the next question from Pete Sheldon on Facebook, who who wants to know uh, how how the old debtors' prisons work. So asking specifically about these uh, these debtors' prisons, um, his point is that it seems people were placed there but were allowed to go to work outside of the prison's confines, and and he wants to know how how that is technically a prison in that sense. Yeah, no, that 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 is an excellent question. Um, we might we might go back a bit of a way, and we might think of the idea of imprisonment for debt. Because we, you know, we, we don't really think of that often 
these days, you know, and, and these types of prisoners. And imprisonment for debt was something that was practiced in the ancient world, in ancient Rome, in ancient Greece, in Babylonia. Um, we, we know that confinement for, for debts owed to the crown entered the, the statute books in England under Henry II, and subsequent legislation in the, the 13th and 14th centuries extended this to private creditors. So if you owed someone money and you weren't paying up, they, they could get you in prison for that, basically. Uh, John Howard, the, the penal reformer, when he was visiting prisons in the 1770s, he found that debtors comprised more than half of the prison population at that time. So we're talking about a massive uh, industry almost in, in imprisoning people. And o- only about a quarter of that population uh, were convicted felons or, or criminals. Uh, and in the late 18th century and early 19th century, there was a, a great increase uh, in imprisoned debtors in the numbers of people who were going into prison because they were in debt. So debtors were held in jails, so county jails, town jails, and usually they were kept apart from felons and criminals uh, who were awaiting trial or criminals who had been convicted, though this wasn't always possible in the smaller jails. Until 1869, they could not be subjected to the same regime as criminals. Okay, so they were allowed a whole range of privileges, uh, visitors, their own food and clothing, and they could continue to work at their own trade or profession if the if it would if the circumstances of confinement allowed it within the prison. They were also exempt from lots of the prison rules. And sometimes they were even employed as officers in the prison. So what we say, in in positions of trust. Some jails had better conditions for debtors than others. So some debtors would try to get arrested uh, in in the vicinity of a a good jail, so they would be confined there. And some could pay to be relocated to a, a better prison as well. There were also debtors' prisons. These were mainly found in London, though there are some others in large towns in the provinces as well. And the most famous were the, the King's Bench, the Fleet Prison, and especially the Marshalsea, as we've mentioned before. Uh, larger debtor prisons and, and also uh, jails, larger jails, were divided into to two areas, the common side and the master side. And the master side was for the wealthier debtors, and they had much better conditions. Uh, at a few uh, select prisons, the debtors who could find uh, two propertied persons to stand security for their good behaviour were allowed to pay for the privilege of even residing in private accommodation outside the jail, so within its immediate kind of vicinity. And this was quite an attractive option, uh, as you might imagine, and it was also quite necessary, uh, especially in the London debtors' prisons, which became really overcrowded uh, by the late 18th century. There were also other day rules, which permitted some prisoners to leave the prison to do business with their creditors and and to work, again, within a defined area. Uh, They just had to return to the prison by 9pm at night. And debtors' prisons or, or jails that held large number of debtors were, were also quite porous in other ways too. There's this constant flow of goods and persons in and out of the debtor side of the prison. So uh, I think 1827, in 1827, 3,000 visitors passed in and out of the Fleet Prison in London every day. That's remarkable. That's an, Yeah, it's an amazing amount of traffic. Uh, at Ilchester, for example, in, in the early 19th century, the jail there, the local tradesmen actually held a daily market inside the jail. 
uh, to sell items to, to the debtors there to keep them happy. And there's also lots of trade and illicit items as well. Some, some debtors also had their families living with them inside the jail. And uh, listeners are probably aware of this, of course, because of the famous example of Charles Dickens and his imprisonment with his family in the Marshalsea because of the debts of his father in, in the early 19th century. So how is this a prison? This is just such a good question with these porous um, boundaries, these porous gates that allow this flow in, 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 in and out. Uh, yeah, well, this kind of openness of incarceration is certainly something that troubled uh, 19th century prison reformers as well and the prison inspectors and even legislatures. Here we have a punishment for debt, so the deprivation of liberty. But we also have a situation where creditors want to be repaid. So the, and the debtors want to be released because you can't be released until you've paid your debt. So they need to provide some way for the, the, the prisoners uh, to, to earn the money to be released. So there has to be some kind of mechanism for that. And I guess that that's the justification for having such an, an open prison it's it's a very curious system when you when you get into the details like you just described, isn't it? Um, another form of of prison, another form of jail that uh, people are interested in, and this is one of the most popular search terms, is is to inquire what were prison hulks. So, can you inform us about them, please? Yeah. Okay. So, so basically, hulks were decommissioned naval vessels which had been converted into prisons. Uh, I I quite like I like to think of them as floating prisons. Really, I, I think that's the best way to imagine them. Uh, they came into use during the, the 1770s uh, when the American War of Independence brought a sudden halt uh, to the transportation of convicted felons to the American colonies. So the jails, for example, started filling up with those who had been sentenced to transportation. They're becoming dangerously overcrowded, so something had to be done. Uh, and to relieve this pressure, Parliament sanctioned the use of, of two decommissioned naval ships that were just lying at Woolwich uh, to hold male convicts who were awaiting exile to the, until new penal colonies could could be found basically and the, these convicts were were put to work they weren't just sitting on the ships uh they were dredging the thames to start with and then working at the the naval facilities at Woolwich uh these hulks were basically meant to be a temporary solution but parliament kept extending uh their use again and again as legislators le legislators just they they were so reluctant to find suitable alternatives and by the early 19th century, hulks are spreading out uh, across England. So we find them at ports all along the south coast, Chatham, Portsmouth, Devonport. Uh, they were brought into use during the war with France in the late 18th and early 19th century as well to hold prisoners of war. And then later they were also put in convict stations abroad in Gibraltar and Bermuda. So we end up with quite a system <laughs> of, of these kind of floating prisons kind of stretching out across England and, and the world. By the late 1840s, a decision was finally made to, to shut this down, to, to start to reduce the use of hulks in, in England and to replace them with land-based convict prisons. But the last hulk was only abolished after it was destroyed by fire in 1857. And those hulks at Bermuda and Gibraltar that I mentioned, they continued in service all the way to the mid-1870s. Wow. And I'm imagining these these weren't very nice places to be. No, they weren't. Uh, they That was the problem with them. Conditions on hulks could be absolutely horrendous. Uh, there was a real problem because you had to lock the men 
down in the, the decks at night time and there was very little supervision. So as to what they got up to, you know, that, mm. that was a real problem. And the, the abuses and the problems of Hulks came before Parliament and parliamentary inquiry again and again and again from the late 18th century through to 1847 when decisions were finally made to wind these things down. So it is amazing that they stretched on for so long. Right, let's um, let's broaden it out a bit because we've got um, a popular search query here, which is what crimes were people imprisoned for in the Victorian period? So we're uh, getting quite specific now into the Victorian period, which is your, your big area of expertise. Okay, great. So let, let's back up a bit and just have a think about uh, kind of pre-19th century for a minute when in prison was just one punishment of, of a kind of menu of options, a menu of punishment options that, that could be imposed on those who had been convicted of crime. And it's important to, to say that it was not the most common punishment either. So we have some men, women, and, and sometimes children convicted of, of petty offences, so begging, vagrancy, prostitution. They, these people were sentenced to imprisonment in houses of correction, but these were a really small proportion of the overall prison population. Jails were primarily used for those who'd been convicted of crime and who were awaiting trial, or for those who had been convicted of crime and were awaiting punishment. When I say that's not uh, imprisonment. And when I, these sorts of punishments ranged from uh, the pillory or the stocks through to whipping, branding, uh, transportation, and then up to execution. From the last quarter of the 18th century, uh, imprisonment with hard labour began to be used as an alternative to transportation, slowly, and also other bodily punishments began to be replaced with sentences of imprisonment. And these trends continued and sped up into, into the 19th century. So by the Victorian period then, if we take that date to be roughly 1840, I would say there's a possibility of imprisonment for just about every crime. So offences against property and offences against a person. Uh, but the death penalty still remained in use uh, for some crimes. Okay, so murder, uh, but also violent theft, arson and sodomy. In practice, though, from about 1840, only murderers were, were actually hanged. Transportation remained the penalty for serious crimes, or what we call felonies, burglary, um, housebreaking, various kinds of theft, forgery, serious assault. Uh, but sentences of imprisonment were available as alternatives for some of these. And it's important to say that, that many of those who were sentenced to transportation were serving an increasing proportion of their sentence in prison in Britain, sometimes on hulks, uh, and sometimes all of their sentence. Between 1853 and 1857, transportation was replaced with penal servitude or what we might call long-term imprisonment, okay? So the 19th century is really about the expansion of the use of imprisonment as a punishment. But counter to this, we need, we need to mention another trend in the 19th century, which is summary justice. And summary justice is about dealing with uh, a range of crimes that are not very serious uh, in the lower courts where smaller penalties are awarded. It's, it's a way to save money, to, to save a, a more expensive jury trial at a higher level. So from about the, the 1840s, we have this trend where uh, alternatives to imprisonment are being used as a punishment here, uh, for example, fines especially. And this, this trend of summary imprisonment is given a, another significant boost in the closing 
decades of, of the 19th century. Uh, arguably, perhaps ironically, because prison then, especially the idea of short terms of imprisonment, was starting to be recognised as part of the crime problem itself. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting, isn't it? Just from a modern mindset in Britain, we tend to think the only response to crime, the only way punishment is, is prison, really, don't we? I suppose there's community service and tagging, things like that. But it's a, it's a very different journey that, uh, that punishment system's been on. But one of the, the, the most terrible punishments, of course, is, is capital punishment. And Mick Robbins wants to know how many executions have taken place within prisons? Uh, this is a really tricky question. I, I like it, but it's hard. OK, so let, let's start with the punishment of execution. Um, or death by hanging. Uh, death by hanging is not the only type of execution, uh, but it's by far the most common, especially by the 18th century. Uh, before before the 19th century, this, this was a punishment for a large number of crimes or felonies. And the aim of execution was basically to deter would-be criminals in a relatively lightly policed society. Okay, Not everyone who was sentenced to death at this time was hanged. Uh, those who were executed were, were typically hanged in public uh, before a crowd. Okay, So that, that means that people could see uh, justice being done and it would also fulfil that aim of deterrence. Okay, So it would show a, a terrible spectacle to those who, who might think about committing crime. They might be dissuaded. In London, up until the late 18th century, public hangings took place at Tyburn. And this was at the end of Oxford Street, uh, kind of the site of the present-day Marble Arch, in 1783, the site of execution was moved to the outside of Newgate Jail. And this was to get rid of the terrible procession that used to happen from Newgate Jail all the way through London to Tyburn. Uh, with crowds would turn out to, to see, to watch the, the criminal being paraded through, and it was noisy and disorderly and disruptive. And it was also to increase the solemnity of, of the occasion as well. But the prison was already, by this time, a convenient site for execution in other towns. Uh, for example, if we think of Lincoln, the roof of, of Cobb Hall, which is part of the walls of, of Lincoln Castle, uh, where the prison was located in Lincoln, the county jail, uh, that, that's where uh, con convicted felons were, were hanged. The castle mound in Cambridge, which was right opposite the county jail, that was also used for executions. And at the beginning of the 19th century, the roof of Horsemonger Lane Jail uh, on, on the south side of the Thames, that, that was used for executions too. So it's already a, an established practice to, to execute people outside the prison. In 1868, public execution in Britain was abolished, though the sentence of death was not. So instead, execution was moved behind closed doors. And this was typically inside the prison. Uh, witnesses to, to the execution were, were basically limited to the, the necessary officers and also representatives from the press who could independently report that it had taken place, you know, and, and all, all was above board. So as for that question, um, if we think about um, within prisons, executions within prisons, so if we take the start date from 1868 through to the last pair to be hanged in Britain in 1964, Alan and Evans, I, I haven't been able to find an exact number. I'm not sure anyone has sat there and, and counted, uh, not that I've been able to find anyway. But I think we're looking in the regions of hundreds if we think murder and treason, the only crimes, high treason by this, this point, the only crimes which people hanged. Okay. Um, 
Now, just thinking about one of the points you're making earlier about the, the sort of the rise in the use of prisons as punishment during the 19th century, uh, the, the search engine query that's very popular is were a lot of prisons built in the Victorian period, and so I suppose one would assume that there must have been, if that's if that's the case, that uh, prison began to be used as punishment. But uh, but is that right? Yeah, no, great question. The Victorians were great prison builders, but this does not necessarily mean that the Victorian period witnessed a rise in the number of prisons, and actually the opposite was the case. So if we deal with that first, if we think about the number of prisons, we know that in the second decade of the 19th century, there were about 320, just under 320 local prisons in in England, for example. Okay, from about 1820, that that number began to decline. Okay, and this is because when the government government of the day made inquiries, because uh, they didn't they didn't actually know how many prisons they had, so they went out to to find out. They found that very lots of little tiny local prisons that had existed, they were still physically there, but they hadn't been used as as jails or bridewells for some time. So they're, they're basically out of use, ready for abolition. Also, there, there was legislation passed around this time. Uh, that meant that it was uh, easier for some prisons, some very small prisons, to merge, or for a larger prison in a county town uh, to take prisoners from smaller surrounding towns. Uh, you know, this this would this is basically for financial reasons. It just makes good sense, doesn't it? By 1843, then the number of local prisons in England had reduced to 213, and this dropped uh, to about 140 in 1860. And we see similar trends in the other nations uh, as well, so Scotland, Wales, etc. In the mid-1860s, Parliament then forcibly closed several more prisons. They, they thought they were badly run and they should be done away with. And they did this again after the nationalisation of local prisons in 1878, another wave of prison closures. So by the closing years of the 19th century, around about 1895, uh, basically, there are just 50 local prisons left. So that, that's a huge drop from over 300. And the relatively small number of convict prisons, uh, which were all built during the 19th century from 1816 with the opening of Millbank, this makes no difference to that, that general trend. Okay, so that's numbers out of the way. Uh, what about prison building? So that's something a little bit different. Uh, prison building, which we might we would think of as as the erection of an entirely new building on a new site, perhaps, or a new building to replace a formal building on the same site, or perhaps a really extensive renovation and remodel. Uh, well, th- this this is kind of associated with waves of prison reform that that began in the late 18th century. Okay, so there's several of these. The first period uh, was in the 1780s to the 1790s, and, and this followed the kind of exposés of the prison reformer John Howard and also the Penitentiary Act of 1779, which set out a, a new a kind of blueprint for how prisons should be constructed and managed. We see another period of, of prison building from about 1800 to 1832, and actually between 1800 and 1832, each year witnessed the construction of at least one new prison or a substantial remodeling of of a prison. And this included the new state prison, uh, Millbank, in 1816. The third wave uh, dates from the early 1840s. And this this began with uh, the model prison, Pentonville, which was considered to be a a kind of model for the separate system of, of prison discipline. 
and the, the architect or engineer behind the design of Pentonville, Joshua Jebb, was appointed as the Surveyor General for Prisons uh, at this time. And this meant that he had the, the job of approving uh, all the plans for new buildings and substantial renovations of, of, of prisons in in England and Wales. They were all sent to him for approval. So there were lots of imitations of Pentonville uh, from, from the 1840s onwards. We see another wave of prison building uh, in the 1850s with the construction of land-based convict prisons. And this is for convicts who were serving new sentences of penal servitude in Britain. And these were based largely in the south and southeast of England. There was also a convict prison in, in Scotland and and some in Ireland as well. The fifth stage followed the nationalisation of local prisons in 1878. Okay, so we have this new head of the Prison Commission who is now in charge of all the local prisons in England. His name is Sir Edmund de Cane, and he initiated this kind of final wave of prison building and renovation. And basically, he was trying to weed out any inadequate local prisons that he had inherited from the local authorities to get rid of them. So yes, the Victorians were... Uh, prolific when it came to, to building prisons and renovating prisons. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. These men decided that male prisoners should climb 8,640 feet on the treadwheel every day. Now, that's the equivalent of climbing to the top of the Shard in London eight times. My thighs would not bear that. And when you combine that with a near starvation diet, stir about, poor sleep, because prisoners were, were forced to sleep on hard boards or planks at the beginning of their sentence, then you begin to get a sense of the torture that many prisoners endured at the end of the Victorian period. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. Now, you mentioned the separate system in that answer. Um, listeners, don't worry if you're not familiar with that. We're going to come to that later on. Um, let's think about the prisoners themselves for a second, because we've got um, a question from uh, Jim with the, with the fantastic Twitter handle of at unknown shoulder, um, who wants to know, when did they start to segregate men and women? And uh, what support, if any, was given to pregnant prisoners and babies? Okay, so... Before the 19th century, the segregation of men and women in prisons was largely down to the discretion of the jailer or the keeper of the institution, and also, of course, the physical arrangement of the buildings, whether it was even possible, uh, given what they had. All sorts of abuse and problems kind of came from this indiscriminate mixing of men and women in prisons. And the, there are stories from the early modern period of female prisoners, for example, who are awaiting trial for felony, attempting to get pregnant so that they could plead the belly and so avoid execution. I think some of these are almost certainly exaggerated. Uh, in 1784 and 1791, there was legislation that encouraged the separation of male and female prisoners. 
but there was no mechanism for the enforcement of this legislation, and so mixing continued in many prisons. The 1823 Jails Act again reinforced this need to separate males and females, and we see more success from this date, actually, in in segregation. And this is probably because of the closure of many of those small prisons uh, that I mentioned before, uh, which would have made where segregation was pretty much impossible, and also through the renovation and rebuilding of, of many larger prisons as well. Some local authorities even went so far as to arrange men and women in separate institutions. And a good example here is Norfolk, where they established a female house of correction in 1832 at Wyndham. And I think this is probably the first female prison in England, actually. So it's it's quite notable. The prison inspectors loved it when they found it. Uh, Okay, so even up to mid-century, Uh, there are still some small local prisons uh, in England and Wales where effective segregation between men and women was just impossible and and some abuse continued. So it's only after nationalisation in 1878 that we know that that effective segregation happens. In convict prisons, segregation was much more successful, uh, basically because the prisons were built for it and that there were many more women who were concentrated in one place. Okay, so they had to build the facilities for it. Millbank Penitentiary had separate pentagons uh, for male and female prisoners. Uh, With the approaching end of transportation in the early 1850s, there was a decision made to to build to create an entirely new female convict prison at Brixton, which opened in 1853. And that was the same year that transportation to Australia for women was completely abolished. Uh, And this was replaced in 1869 by a purpose-built women's convict prison at Knapp Hill in Woking. It might be worth pointing out in the answer to this question too, Elizabeth Fry is often held accountable uh, for the segregation of males and females in prisons. Actually, when she arrived at Newgate to begin her work with the prisoners in 1816, the men and women had already been segregated. So instead, what can be attributed to Fry and her work is the idea that female prisoners should be superintended or or supervised by female officers or guards, and that that no male, especially no male authority figure, prison officer, a chaplain, etc., should have access to a female prisoner without a female chaperone. And this became enshrined in the legislation in 1823. And I, I think it's quite a revolutionary idea for the time. And the important thing, it really spread to other public institutions, hospitals, workhouses, etc., as well. Following segregation in the 19th century, there were important differences in the treatment of male and female prisoners and also in their their experiences of imprisonment. This is most apparent in the convict sector because the regime could be constructed around women's needs and and kind of particular ideas about their criminality more more easily. And and female criminals were were basically um, viewed as more morally depraved than male criminals uh, because of dominant ideas about femininity at the time. So where men were serving sentences of penal servitude, they served um, nine months in separate confinement. Women only spent four months in separate confinement because it was thought to be much more damaging to their health. Men like women, um, women like men served at second stage of imprisonment, but those who behaved well might be sent to a refuge, like Fulham Refuge, to serve a third stage with lighter discipline in preparation for release. Uh, men laboured on public works during their second stage 
of imprisonment. But for women, uh, it was laundry, endless, endless laundry uh, that they had to perform. As for babies, that, that's, that's a really interesting question. It's difficult to answer because what happened to women who gave birth to babies in prisons or who had very small babies when convicted, this, com- this depended completely on the institution in many cases. The authorities for some local prisons allowed women to keep their babies with them. There, there are some quite striking uh, images that, that come from the, the legends and the sources surrounding Elizabeth Fry and her work at Newgate. The children were imprisoned with their mothers. Brixton Convict Prison for Women actually had a nursery for the babies and that they could be left there and looked after while the women worked in the laundry, doing the endless laundry. Uh, But after 1866, convict prison nurseries began to disappear. So the practice soon became women who were pregnant and being held in local prisons. They they remained there until they gave birth. Uh, They were given a short period with their baby, and then they were separated. They were sent to the convict system without the, the child who was then sent into the community for care by kin or the authorities. Pretty pretty brutal stuff. Yes. So leading on from that, from the question of the babies, uh, La Vie Marie wanted to know, was there an age limit for prisoners? Yes. So there were children in 19th century prisons. Uh, there were the babies and the small children who had been in prison with their mothers. And, and there were also children who were being held for trial who who were serving sentences of imprisonment, having been convicted as well. There were also children of debtors. Uh, so that, that's where the debtors had brought their families into the prison to reside with them. And the very famous example of that being Charles Dickens, who as a child spent time at Marshalsea when his father was imprisoned for debt in the early 19th century. As for criminal children, yes, there was an age limit. Uh, in law, children under the age of seven were believed to be incapable of committing crime. Uh, from the early 19th century, those aged between 7 and 14 were also held to be incapable of committing crime unless it could be shown that they had acted with malice, so they knowingly committed crime. Uh, those above the age of 14 were, were, were basically treated the same as adults at this time. Even in the early 19th century, though, it was, was recognised that prisons were not appropriate places for children and there were some real efforts to, to remove them or to stop them entering prison in the first place. So sometimes children were chastised. Um, by that I mean whipped, for example, and then kind of sent on their way as a punishment. From about the turn of the 19th century, there were also a number of private reformatories that were established in London. And some judges sent convicted children to these institutions rather than sending them to prison. Between 1838 and 1864, there was a juvenile convict prison at Parkhurst, And at first, this was intended to prepare boys who had been sentenced to transportation uh, for dispatch to the colonies to give them some skills that would be useful when they arrived in in Australia. Uh, Over time, it increasingly functioned as a juvenile prison, though. And by the 1860s, more and more juveniles were being diverted away from the convict system. They didn't want them in there. By 1878, those sentences of penal servitude were restricted to those aged 16 and above, unless in the most horrendous circumstances they might, they might give a child a sentence of, of penal servitude. In the 1850s, a state-supported system of reformatory schools was established in England and Wales as well. 
and children convicted of crime could be sent to these institutions for periods of between five and seven years. Uh, However, because legislators were really eager that the children who committed crime should not escape punishment, they decided they should serve a prison sentence before they were sent to the reformatory, usually a couple weeks. And also, many children continued to be sentenced to imprisonment rather than being sent to a reformatory. And some actually thought that this was more advantageous to to them as well. I mean, being locked up in a reformatory for five to seven years uh, could could also be a terrible thing. There was a, a final kind of effort at the end of the 19th century to divert children from prison uh, and they came up with a range of altern- alternative penalties for those who kind of required punishment too. But it was the reformatory was was the big driver uh, to get pr- children away from prisons. But there's a really big question on, uh, on that's asked on the internet search engine, which is what were conditions like in Victorian prisons? People just want to know how grim it was, I guess, and you know probably um, based on on reading Dickens. So what can you tell us about that? Okay, yeah, that that is a really, really big question, and I hate to give this response varied. <laughs> Would be, I, I think we can probably unpack it a bit more. But if I try to give an overview, so if we think in the Victorian period, uh, there were two types of prisons. Okay, there were local prisons and there were convict prisons. Local prisons are the end point for many those who are serving sentences of imprisonment and then released, but they're also the starting point for those who are convicted of felonies who were then transferred into the convict system. And also in local prisons, of course, there are debtors, uh, those who are waiting trial as well. Okay, until nationalisation in 1878, these local prisons were run by the local authorities. So they might be county magistrates on the quarter sessions bench, uh, but also town corporations or town councils. Local rates, local taxes paid for these local prisons. And so the local authorities then determined the conditions within them. There was legislation, there was penal policy that's made at the centre by by the government. And the government at this time is very keen to make conditions in all these local prisons uniform. And from 1835, they even started sending prison inspectors out to look at the conditions and try to enforce uh, the the policy making that was going on at the centre. By 1860, you could say a lot had been achieved to this end but there still remain some substantial points of difference. Okay, so hence varied. In 1878, all local prisons came under the control of a new sub-department of the Home Office, which was known as the Prison Commission, and the financial burden for those local prisons was then transferred to the Exchequer, so it came out of national taxes. The chair of that prison commission, uh, Sir Edmund Duquesne, pursued a policy of uniformity in local prisons, so that all prisoners, wherever they were incarcerated, England and Wales, would be treated the same. That that was his aim. So uniformity, though, typically meant minimum standards. So locating the lowest common denominator and reducing everything down to that. Not the idea of improving standards for prisoners. Probably so good thing. Not to, a to, not a good thing for prisoners. I I would say not. I think pr- prisons became. Uh, more healthy and sanitised environments because of the renovations that were carried out in the wake of 1878. Uh, But in terms of the experience of imprisonment, those conditions was a downward slope, yeah, and became horrendous. There were also convict prisons, as I said, and they held convicts who had been sentenced to transportation and who were waiting to go to the colonies, 
and then from 1853, convicts who had been sentenced to penal servitude. Some of these convict prisons were probationary prisons. So they were places where convicts served their first stage of punishment, typically in separate confinement. Other convict prisons were public works prisons. Okay, And this is where convicts were sent to serve their second stage of punishment. And that meant typically laboring on public infrastructure projects. And there were also female convict prisons, as I've mentioned, and conditions differed according to the type of prison, the labor performed, and the type of convicts sent there. So throughout the Victorian period, in both local and convict prisons, there was this ongoing tension between the two declared aims of imprisonment, punishment and rehabilitation. So one was often emphasized over the other, but they coexisted throughout. And that's that's really important to, to make clear. So that even in the darkest days of the 1880s, I've just mentioned before, when, when prisoners uh, in both convict prisons and local prisons were subjected to Duquesne's kind of, kind of new brutal regime, there remained facilities, for example, to teach prisoners how to read, write and count. Um. Now I said we'd uh, we'd come back to to this question uh, earlier. Uh, there's a popular search engine query: what was the separate system, and indeed what was the silent system, and were those two things um, different? Okay, yes. So the separate system and the silent system were two rival systems of prison discipline that emerged in Britain during the 1830s. Both ideas have really been proposed by prison reformers in the 18th century in Britain, uh, but. Ironically, they found their first practical application in America, in the United States. So at Auburn and Sing Sing prisons in New York, uh, by the 1830s, we can see the silent system in use there. And this meant prisoners who were kept in association, so they're still able to see each other uh, and were with each other, but complete silence was imposed on them. And this silence was enforced by guards and a system of punishments that included whipping and solitary confinement as well. Basically, it was a pretty punishing regime. But it's it's kind of promoters argued that it did actually present opportunities to teach prisoners some harsh lessons in self-control. That's kind of debatable, but that's okay. At Eastern State Penitentiary in Philadelphia, uh, they decided to enforce a separate system and they were used as a kind of model internationally for this uh, in the 1830s. So here, prisoners were confined to their cells for the duration of their sentence. They never left their cells. And their solitude uh, was kind of mitigated by practical work, so they might do some weaving or some shoemaking, and also visits from moral agents, uh, effectively religious men, chaplains. The aim of this system was reformative. So the belief was that strict isolation would break the the kind of hardened resolve of the prisoner and prepare him or her later to receive Christian messages of of salvation uh, through repentance. So why were reformers in Britain attracted to these systems? Uh, Okay, so the 1830s uh, was a time of social crisis in Britain. Poverty was endemic, uh, crime was on the rise, and prisons were really filling up. Imprisonment was just failing to do do either of its its aims, to deter or to reform. And the prisons looked like schools of vice, basically. All these prisoners associated in them, there was a lot of corruption. It was fueling crime. It was breeding crime. 
So separation and silence offered a means of kind of frustrating that prisoner association and frustrating their subcultures uh, to gain more control over, over the prisoner. Penal reformers and policymakers in the 1830s expressed a preference for the separate system. And this was reflected in legislation and also in the construction of the new convict prison, Pentonville, which opened in 1842 and which had some really, um, you might say, weird kind of bespoke uh, design features, which we can talk about later. However, uh, because local prisons were under the control of the local authorities, some governors chose to impose the silent system instead. And a really good example of this is the governor, George Chesterton, at Coldbath Fields Prison in London, who was actually a great friend of Charles Dickens, uh, as, it, as it happens. The silent system was also cheaper. You, you could just introduce it overnight, just impose a rule of silence, and it didn't require any kind of modification to the buildings. Separation was expensive because you, you had to do a lot of modification, and often the, the prisons that were modified for separation were still really inadequate to achieve it uh, in its purest form. By the late 1840s, the, sep the separate system came under attack, largely because of the experiment at Pentonville. People believed that the prisoners there were being mollycoddled. They, they had cells that were heated, cells that had running water, and the, the convicts there were supplied with books to keep their spirits up and to help their uh, religious reform. And there were also those who believed that that lengthy separation up to 18 months in the early days of Pentonville uh, could send prisoners insane. Charles Dickens, for example, he, he kind of had a foot in both camps. He thought there was a lot of mo mollycoddling, but also the potential for insanity. But crucially, this kind of public criticism of the separate system did not bring it to an end. Uh, instead, it held uh, kind of new attractions for a new generation of prison reformers who began to appear in the late 1850s who wanted to make prisons a lot more punitive and, and painful. And they grabbed onto the idea that separation for prisoners was an incredibly painful thing to do and prisoners really hated the isolation, the solitude. So separation continued to form part of a sentence of penal servitude and it also became part of the, the short, sharp shock sentences that were given to men and women confined in local prisons in the last quarter of the 19th century. Uh, the nationalisation of, of local prisons in 1878 basically ended kind of any lasting examples of the silent system, brought those to a close. Separation, though, remained a core part of prison discipline until the 1920s. Wow. I mean, that, it doesn't sound much like mollycoddling to me, but um, I guess uh, different times and all that. Um, did Victorian prisoners have to pay for their food? That's a, that's a big search engine query. Yeah, basically, no, they didn't. So prisoners in local jails before the 19th century did have to pay for their own food. Uh, as I've said before, they had to bear much of the cost of their confinement. Uh, those who were poor and in prison had to rely on charity. And some of that might have been provided by the local authorities, sometimes not. Uh, conversely, those prisoners who are wealthy could buy in whatever food they liked. The 1823 Jail Act brought an end to this and specified that a minimum provision of food had to be given to all prisoners and paid for out of local rates, local taxes. Uh, it also said that those who had been criminally convicted could not supplement their provisions by buying in their own food. That's kind of, it goes against the idea of punishment a bit. Debt is, of course, where the exception 
destitute debtors from the early 19th century were provided with food so that they didn't starve, but other debtors were expected and did continue to buy in their own supplies. And and what did they actually eat? How bad was the food? Oh, how bad was the food? Um, pretty, pretty uh, bad if you were a, a criminal prison uh, criminal prisoner. Did, did you want me to, to kind of give you some examples? Yes, please. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So um, in 1843, the Home Office put forward this new dietary scale for for local prisons, and according to this, all prisoners were meant to receive this kind of basic provision of oatmeal, gruel, and bread. Now, depending on your sentence, you would get slightly more oatmeal, gruel, and bread. For example, if you're in prison for longer, uh, if you're performing hard labour, you might get a pint of soup once a week to go with that. Uh, or if you're serving more than two weeks and performing hard labour, you might get a little bit of meat and some potatoes twice a week uh, as, as a supplement. But because prisons were run by local authorities, these, these local prisons, and payment for food came from local taxes, they didn't have to adopt this diet and they could decide to give more or they could decide to give less. As, as the case may be. Um, convict prisons from the mid-1860s, the diet there was calculated to ensure that prisoners were only given the minimum amount needed to endure the hard labour. So in 1864, this was cocoa for breakfast, cheese or beef and potatoes, or suet pudding and potatoes for dinner, and then gruel for supper. And in the late 1870s, a new kind of food was introduced into prison called stirabout, which was basically a thin porridge, which might have a little bit of fat in it. Uh, and it was deliberately made unappetizing. The smell was apparently awful. And it was often upsetting to prisoners' stomachs as well. So you can imagine what that did to the toilet facilities and the general smell of the prison. So hunger, uh, you know, among the men who are performing hard labor in convict prisons is often discussed in memoirs and in other sources. And there are these kind of heartbreaking stories of men who would resort to eating their own candles or books in their cells to, to kind of supplement that. Uh, after nationalisation in 1878, um, the diet in local prisons was standardised and stirabout was introduced here as well. And the aim was to achieve a sufficient and not more than sufficient amount of food necessary just to sustain life. Okay, So prisoners in the first stage uh, of their punishment were given stirabout and bread only. And although the diet improved a bit if you made it to the higher stages, most prisoners didn't because of the predominance of short sentences. So the or novelist Oscar Wilde, which um, many people know, who was imprisoned at Reading Jail in the 1890s, he later wrote about the kind of severe gastrointestinal troubles he experienced while he was incarcerated there, and he wasn't even on the strictest diet. That, that does sound pretty awful. I don't much like the sound of stir about. Um, I don't much like the sound of uh, having to do hard labour either. So another search engine question is what kind of work or labour did prisoners in the Victorian period have to do? Yeah, okay, that, that that's a good question. Um, it it took some time in the 19th century uh, for labour and, and particularly hard labour to be provided in every prison. And at least until the last quarter of the 19th century, the types of labour that were performed by prisoners often differed between prisons. So again, we get that variation in conditions that, that we've been talking about. So 
basically um, penal reformers uh, in 18th century prisons, if we start there, the, the provision of labour was very, very patchy. And penal reformers at the turn of the 19th century saw much danger in the idleness that they thought was endemic in prisons. There's an opportunity for corruption, basically, for prisoners to have too much time to talk to each other and, and cook up bad ideas. The 1823 Jail Act tried to tighten things up and it mandated the provision of labour for convicted prisoners in local prisons and also for the voluntary employment for prisoners, prisoners awaiting trial. But these provisions were not enforceable. And in a small number of prisons, there continued to be no work. The 1823 Jail Act didn't specify what types of work should be performed either. So at some local prisons, prisoners were, were, put, were worked at jobs or trades that were connected with the local economies. Uh, at others, prisoners performed labour which helped to keep the prison functioning. So pumping water, uh, for example, or, or grinding grain for bread. The 1820s, importantly, also saw the introduction of the treadwheel into local prisons, which I'm sure many people have heard about. Basically, the treadwheel was this large wheel with wooden steps, which prisoners would climb in order to turn the wheel. It was also known as the everlasting staircase because it went on and on and on. And this machine was really attractive uh, to penal reformers, to administrators, because it seemed to pr promise a uniform punishment. So in reality, of course, the pain was individualised because it, 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 it really relates to the strength and constitution of, of the individual. And at first, women were placed on the treadwheel as well uh, in, in the 1820s, but they were soon removed because of the damage it seemed to cause to their health. There were some scandals of, of pregnant women having miscarriages because of labour on the wheels. And these early treadwheels were usually productive. So turning the wheel provided energy to do something like grind grain, that would later be used to make bread. With the rise of the separate system in the late 1830s, treadwheels in some prisons were abandoned and labour was confined to the cell. So here we see the rise of picking oakum. And this is a form of work that requires prisoners to separate out strands of old tarred rope for reuse. Uh, horrible on your fingers to do that kind of work. And this became a very common form of hard labour because it could easily be performed within the confines of a cell. At the convict prisons before mid-century, Millbank, Pentonville, Parkhurst, convicts were often put to work at a trade. At Pentonville and Parkhurst, uh, some thought uh, was given to what skills and trades would be useful in the penal colonies uh, when they got to Australia. And there was a focus on, on that. The end of transportation in the 1850s and the establishment of new prisons for convicts serving sentences of penal servitude required a completely different approach. And after serving that period of separate confinement, male convicts were sent to labour on public works, so basically public infrastructure projects. So there was quarrying stone at Chatham and Portland, uh, projects for land rec reclamation uh, on the moors at Dartmoor. And there were many, many accidents at these places of work. And some convicts even deliberately hurt themselves to get out of the labour in prisons like Chatham because the conditions of labour were just so brutal and awful. For female convicts, as I mentioned earlier, hard labour really just meant loads and loads and loads of laundry. Uh, things got tougher in local prisons too. Uh, the 1865 Prison Act that was brought in uh, because they thought prisoners are having an easy time of it, this actually specified the types of hard labour that prisoners should be forced to perform 
So this is a tread wheel, hand crank, shot drill, stone breaking, and the capstan. These are all listed as, as punish, hard labor of the first class. And this is all bodily painful labor, uh, which was meant to be penal and not productive. So those early tread wheels that had provided a source of energy were disconnected. And they, this was to increase the pain mentally that you just stepped and stepped and stepped all day long. However, the full force of this legislation was not felt until after the, the nationalisation of prisons in 1878. Okay, And we, we've spoken before about the new prison commission and the evil uh, Sir Edmund Duquesne, who insisted on uniformity across the sector. And this led to a really cruel and punishing regime. So one of, one of his first acts as prison commissioner was to appoint a committee of medical and scientific men to determine exactly how much labour could be performed by prisoners each day, basically without killing them. And these, this committee, these men decided that male prisoners should climb 8,640 feet on the treadwheel every day. Now, that's the equivalent of climbing to the top of the shard in London eight times. My thighs would not bear that at all. And when you combine that with a near-starvation diet, stir about, uh, poor sleep, because prisoners were, were forced to sleep on hard boards or planks at the beginning of their sentence, then you begin to get a sense of the torture that many prisoners endured at the end of the Victorian period. That's not a recipe for wellness, is it? That sort of regime. No, th these are tread wheels, not not treadmill that we might think about today. As you know, this this kind of getting fit equipment down at the the gym. Reflecting on on the long history of prisons, then um, Google uh, internet search question wants to know what are the most famous and infamous prisons. So, which what would you choose? Okay, I'm I'm going to choose three, uh, which, which I think are probably the most famous prisons in British history. First of all, Newgate Prison, also known as Newgate Jail. This is first on my list because although it no longer exists, it still has this totemic value. Uh, it has this place in the collective memory of London and of punishment in Britain. It's possibly Britain's longest running prison as well. So it first opened in about 1188 and only officially closed in 1902, though it was rebuilt several times in that period. It was sacked by rioters during the Gordon riots of 1780, just after it had been rebuilt, actually. And Elizabeth Fry, of course, made it famous through her penal, her, her experiments in, in penal reform at the beginning of the 19th century. So it became this long-lasting symbol of the need for penal reform in Britain. Okay, so that's my number one. My number two would be the Marshalsea Prison, the debtors prison in Southwark on the south bank of the Thames. And this was first established in the late 14th century. Well, that's our first reference to it anyway. Because, and I've chosen it because this prison became symbolic of debtor prisons and the experiences of debtors in prisons. It was also made famous by Charles Dickens, of course, who we've mentioned a few times today, uh, who as a child lived with his family in the Marshalsea when his father was imprisoned for debt. And he later used this experience for his novel, uh, Little Dorrit, and this made the Marshalsea Prison famous internationally. Okay, my third prison, I would choose Pentonville Prison, and here I had to toss up, to be honest, between Pentonville and Millbank, but Pentonville, we'll go for Pentonville, the model prison, which was built to enable the introduction of a kind of form of separate confinement 
in Britain. Its architecture at the time was cutting edge. There was heating in cells, running water in cells. A separate chapel was built where every convict was basically put in his own box. And the whole system had this amazing locking and opening uh, mechanics to get the prisoners in and out. And there were also machines that were installed for the regulation of staff to make sure that they were doing their jobs properly. As the model prison, it was copied. This was the beginning of a new prison architecture across Britain. And it was also where really important lessons on separate confinement were learned, how much solitude was dangerous. Okay, and it's the only one of my three that is still open today. So they're my three. Uh, I'm aware that they're all London-based and they're not really representative. But then I would argue what prison in British history is representative. You know, as we've just been saying, conditions varied so much. Basically, I've chosen them because for me, they all symbolise key landmarks in the history of imprisonment. Other famous prisons might have been the Tower of London or the many historic prisons, which are now open as prison museums. Yeah, and I'm, uh, I'm, my mind is turned to Lincoln, Lincoln Castle, where you can see some very interesting stuff there. I've, I think that's still open. You've got uh, the Panopticon there, I think, is, uh, is, a, is a curious thing, isn't it? Just before we go on to the last question, um, we talked about the histories of uh, uh, prisons in Britain here. And as you said, your examples there are all London-based. We haven't talked about much about Scotland. I wonder, was the system in Scotland at all different, or is it, is it an extension of, of what was happening in England and Wales? basically an extension when it comes to ideas of penal reform. Sometimes Scotland is slightly ahead of England and Wales and sometimes it's slightly behind, but they basically run in a bit of a parallel track. Uh, Scotland has its own criminal justice system, has done for hundreds of years, uh, and they had a system of local prisons just like England and Wales, and later there were national prisons. Scotland has always had management of its own prisons. It's been devolved uh, in the case of nationalisation, that that was devolved from from the Home Office. Right. Let's let's take the last question, which is a really good one to finish on from uh, Carl O'Doherty on Twitter. So thanks for this question, Carl. Um, he asks, "What of the old ideas are still around today? What hasn't changed?" So he's thinking of scheduled meal times and labour systems. So so how far is uh, is the is the old experience still with us? I guess. Yeah, I think I think this is a really good question. Uh, thinking back to what we've discussed about today, we no longer have the tread wheel and we don't have hard labour. Uh, we no longer feed prisoners stir about, which is a good thing. And we don't have separate confinement. You know, the, the, that period of total seclusion uh, served as part of a prison sentence. All of those things have gone. Uh, there are no longer two prison systems either, the local and convict, or prison or sentences of penal servitude. Uh, instead, now we've got categories of prisons uh, into which kind of men and women are, are placed according to their crime, their character, their length of sentence. But despite all this, I would still argue that we are in this era of the modern prison, which began in about the late 18th century when prison was transformed as a punishment and as an institution. So from, from being one option for the, the punishment of crime to being the most commonly inflicted punishment for crime and from the unhealthy dangerous holding pen to the, the clean and ordered and generally uniform uh, institution. Timetables are a part of that, uh, scheduled mealtimes, as, as, as Carl mentioned. So when prisoners get up and eat and go to work, uh, so too is the management of bodies. And you know, we have 
from this arising problems of, of what we might call institutionalization and the ability of, of prisoners then to adapt again to the outside world. The broad outlines of the regime are recognizable too, that prisoners should work and the work provided is too often menial and also the provision of some reformative opportunities. And I mean by that the, the provision of education, for example, uh, which still comes with way too many conditions, which ultimately limits its usefulness. The persistence of those twin aims of imprisonment to punish and rehabilitate, that's still there and constantly intention and ultimately limiting the effectiveness of the institution. The prison, I would argue, continues very much to be part of the problem of crime, not the solution. It continues to be kind of self-perpetuating this, this kind of revolving door uh, again and again that the solution to the failings of the prison proposed by policymakers is just more prisons. And I think the time is ripe now for a bit of a rethink of the prison as a punishment and the prison as an institution. Well, Rosalind, thank you so much for that. We've covered so much ground and uh, loads of food for thought there, as well as loads of hard facts as well. So thank you so much for, for, for giving our listeners such a such a full introduction. We actually had a few more questions that we didn't get through about the experience of prison officers and, and parole. Um, so if you ask those questions, I'm sorry, maybe we'll have to do a, 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 an extra an extra version of this to, to come back to it because people are so interested in this topic. Um, but thank you so much for that. And as I said at the start, um, if you go to prisonhistory.org, you'll find lots more information there um just just one final question it wasn't if you were if you were going to visit a prison uh like a prison museum or something like that was there one that you would particularly say oh, i'd love to go there that's a really good one to go to sort of experience the the, the prison situation that is a really hard one to answer because there, there are some very good prison museums around these days uh you mentioned lincoln castle and i think that is a very good one to visit because it shows uh, the different, the the kind of the evolution of the idea of imprisonment. They've got the dungeon, uh, they've got the 18th century John Howard prison, and then they've got the 19th century separate prison at the back. And they have the only surviving example of a separate chapel in the world. So that that one would be my pick, and I think it is well worth a visit. And you've also got some lovely medieval history there as well, which you can uh, pop over and see the cathedral. So it's, a, so it's a nice day out there. Okay, well, thank you so much. Thank you very much for your time. That was brilliant. Thank you. That was Dr. Rosalind Crone. She's written a timeline of British prisons for us, which you can find on our website at historyextra.com forward slash prisons timeline. Rosalind is also the project lead at prisonshistory.org. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Tune in tomorrow for a conversation with some of the authors shortlisted for this year's Wolfson History Prize.